Remain standing for our gospel lesson and sermon text from John 19. Again, give your ear to God's word, to God's gospel. Then they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek and Latin. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now, the tunic was without seam. Woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. We do thank you, Father, for your word that you have given to us. And we thank you for not being a silent God, but a God who speaks to your people, to us, who reveals to us who you are, what you've done in creation and in salvation, what you've done for us in Jesus, particularly through his cross. Today, as we meditate On this passage, give us eyes to see you, give us pure hearts so that we might see you, and ears to hear, and then wills to do what you're calling us to do in response to it. We ask for these blessings in the name of Jesus, amen. Please be seated. It's wonderful to be back with you all, worshiping with you and speaking, preaching to you. My family and I uh, are very thankful for the outpouring of love that we, that we received from you, all the emails, texts, calls, and food, the concern for us. Uh, that meant a lot to us. God used it mightily to build us up, to encourage us physically and spiritually. And I know others that were sick feel the same way. 
back in chapter 2 of John's Gospel, at the wedding in Cana, Jesus famously told his mother, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So that's that, the first of, of a handful or more of passages where Jesus addresses a woman and calls her woman. And if, if you go back a year or so ago or more, we talked about the significance of that, the typology of that, the biblical theology of, of woman, why he uses that word woman. Well, now we've come to the end, toward the end of the book, or getting close to the end of the book, where the, the final one here in John 19, where he addresses Mary once again as woman. And the hour of Jesus has come. In John 2, the hour had not come. That's what he told the woman, his mother. But now, the hour has come. The Jewish and Roman trials have concluded, and everyone has determined, all of humanity, Jews and Gentiles alike, have decided that he should die on a Roman cross. Most importantly, though, God and his Christ have decided that Jesus should die on a Roman cross. The hour that was foreordained before the foundations of the world has arrived. The crucifixion of Christ is the hour. And it's the hour when death gave birth to life. The crucifixion is the hour when God declared that the crucified Jesus, the crucified Lord, is the true king, the true priest, the true son of God. Many preachers and teachers have pointed out how desensitized we, we've become to the physical suffering of Christ on the cross. We regularly hear the readings of, of the crucifixion account. We regularly even see paintings or other forms of, of artistic depictions of the crucifixion. And if we're not careful, we can become unmoved, disinterested, unmoved by the physical pain that Christ endured on the cross. He endured something that we probably can't even imagine. And that's a real problem for us to to become desensitized to that. But it's equally true that if we're not careful, we can read an account like the one we just read and miss the theological significance of the cross. And what I mean by that is we can fail to see and meditate on the nature of the person that's hanging on that cross. The gospel is not just the cross or a cross. It's, the gospel is the cross of Christ. It's a personal, personal event that tells us much about our personal God. Our, duties, our duty as readers is to take our cues from John, from the author of the gospel. We need to make sure we're looking where he's directing and not somewhere else. In our passage today, John is guiding us to see in the death of Jesus the fuller meaning of his person 
and his work. Now, the, the whole gospel of John, and you, we could even say the whole Bible, the Old Testament leading up to the gospels, has been pointing to this meaning, this person, and all of the significance all along. But now we see it in a new way, in a deeper way, in a clearer way. The crucified Jesus is the climactic event in the Bible. It's the climactic revelation of who God is. And so the crucified Jesus is fulfilling the perfect plan of God as king, as priest, as true son of God. As true king, Jesus is the ruler over the world. As true high priest, Jesus is mediator for the world. And as true son, he is the creator of the world. And all of those ideas pop up, even in this one passage. And here's the point of all of this. Here's the point of, of seeing these ideas that we're talking about. All of this is made known, made known to us. His kingship, his high priesthood, his godness, you know, that he is the son of God and the creator and the new creator of the new creation. All of this is made known to us at the cross. And none of this could have been fully manifested apart from the cross. The reality is that the revelation of God was not yet full. It, it, we needed this event. We needed the Gospels to tell us about this event. The Old Testament was not full in its revelation of God. We know more about God because of this event, because of the cross. The nature and character of Jesus could not have been revealed to us in any other way. We couldn't know who Jesus is without the cross. At the cross, we see our king in all his glory. At the cross, we see our high priest doing what no other high priest could do, which is to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice. At the cross, we see the true character and personality of the eternal Son of God. At the cross, in his hour of death, we see the light of the world walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and there we see him shining in all his brilliance. Our passage is divided up into four scenes, and we'll walk through the first two this week, starting with the first scene, which goes from the middle of verse 16 to the end of verse 18. Then they took Jesus and led him away. Verse 17. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the middle or in the center. This first scene depicts the, the place and the procedure of the crucifixion. doesn't tell us much about either. John, the author, expects us 
the readers to have already heard, his readers even, to have already heard and known about this as a historical event. So he doesn't go into great detail. When he says that Jesus was bearing his own cross, it means he was carrying his own cross beam. Not, not both beams, not the whole thing, but the cross beam. And he was carrying it to the place where he would be executed. And when he got there, the soldiers would take that cross beam and attach it to the permanent upright beam or stake that was in the ground. Jesus makes a, or John makes a point to tell us the name of the crucifixion site because it's important. It, it was called Skull Place or in Hebrew Golgotha. The, the Latin version of this is Calvaria, which is where we get our English word Calvary, which also means skull. And why do you think John, along with all the other gospel writers, why do you think he bothers telling us that Jesus died at, at, skull, pla- at skull Place on top of a skull? You ever thought about that? Well, I mean, why, you know, what's important in this name, in this location, and what it's called? It's because John wants to make sure we see the connection between Genesis 3.15 and the crucifixion of Jesus. Do you know what Genesis 3.15 says? That's, that's one of the first you know, verses that, that you should know or memorize when, in terms of verses that help you understand the biblical theological story narrative of the whole Bible. Genesis 3.15 is where God tells the serpent, just after the fall, just after the sin of Adam, God tells the serpent that one day in the future, there's going to be a a man, seed of the woman, a savior, we'll call him, who will crush the serpent's skull, head. The, The serpent will bruise the savior's heel, a lesser wound, But the Savior, God says, will deliver a death blow to the serpent's head. That's happening now. That's happening in this passage. That prophecy is being fulfilled on top of a place called the skull. I want you to consider the picture that John is painting here. The other gospel writers paint a similar picture. Jesus is on top of Golgotha, on top of a head, on top of a skull, and his heel is being bruised as he uses it to crush the skull underneath him. That picture symbolizes the cosmic and and spiritual battle taking place. Jesus isn't a passive victim on the cross. He's an active warrior during his crucifixion. He's a head crusher on the cross. At Calvary, Jesus is fulfilling God's purposes. He's completing God's mission. He's saving God's people. He's destroying the works of the devil. 
crushing his head. 1 John 3.8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This happens on the cross. In dying, Jesus destroyed death and the devil. Now, of course, we need the resurrection. None of this would be true without the resurrection. But because the resurrection will happen, because it did happen, we can go back to the death and see and consider what Jesus is accomplishing there through his sacrifice, through his obedience to the Father all the way to the point of death on a cross. Now, Roman crucifixions are well documented, so we know a lot about how they happened and what would have happened in this one, in addition to, of course, the the details that the Gospels give us. After the criminal was flogged, he was forced to carry his crossbeam to the place of execution, and he was often scourged on the way as well. His clothes were fully stripped from him. When he arrived at the place where the, the permanent upright stake was, his hands and ankles were fastened to the cross with ropes or nails. Jesus got the nails. The nails were about six inches long, long enough to penetrate the flesh and muscles and bones, bone and, and then wood of the cross so that the criminal was secured. The upright beam had a seat on it, a little seat on it, about midway. And near the top was a groove that received the crossbeam. The naked body hanging on the cross, of course, would have been susceptible to all the external conditions. Some accounts of wild animals nipping at the feet of the criminals. It was natural and and common, very common for countless flies to land on all these bodily wounds that the criminal had. Body parts became swollen. Bodily waste exited the body uncontrollably. The only way to get relief from hanging in this agonizing position really was to die. Death usually didn't come from blood loss, even though the criminal would have been bleeding. The criminal died because he could no longer breathe or because his blood stopped circulating. Now, the one being crucified could extend his life by pushing down with his feet and lifting himself up to get more air into his lungs as long as his feet were secured the bottom of the cross. At the same time, though, lifting oneself up like this was designed to cause unbearable, unspeakable pain. The, the Romans typically just left the body on the cross hanging until it rotted. But the Jews demanded that the body be buried on the day of execution to prevent the land from being defiled. This was based on Deuteronomy 21, which says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death, 
and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So because this man is cursed, you don't want to leave this cursed thing, corpse, in the land hanging overnight to defile the promised land. Crucifixions in Rome were designed to shame criminals and to discourage others from similar behavior. They were also a form of entertainment. Crowds would often gather, present themselves, and and ridicule, mock those being hanged. That's a very brief, brief sketch that leaves out more details than it includes. But with these few details, we can at least begin to visualize the physical horror Christ experienced for us, for you, in his crucifixion. Still, though, that physical agony is just a shadow, just a shadow of the misery he endured in his soul because our sins were put on him and because God's wrath was poured out on him. The spiritual horror was so great, the emotional pain was so great that it compelled him to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in undergoing such physical and especially spiritual suffering, our king expressed how much he loved us. This is one of the main points I want us to get here. He did this, Jesus did this for us, for you, for those he came to save out of deep, deep love. And this event, this cross event, is an expression of that love. Above all, the cross is an expression of God's love for you in Christ, through Christ. C.S. Lewis helps us see this in his excellent book, The Four Loves. First, Lewis imagines, quote, the buzzing cloud of flies above the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the medial nerves, the repeated torture of back and arms of the cross as time after time, for earth's sake, hitched up. Then Lewis comments, God is a host. He uses biological terms. God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites. He causes us to be parasites that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. End quote. When you think about the suffering of Christ on the cross. You haven't thought about it rightly if it does not lead you to a deeper understanding of the love of God for you. The love of God for you, his people, in Christ Jesus. 
And that's where a lot of skeptics who are critical of Scripture, critical of the Christian faith, just don't get it because they see a God who, quote-unquote, abuses his son. You've probably heard the skeptics talk about cosmic child abuse. That's, that's what the gospel is, cosmic child abuse. That's because they're failing to see that underneath the wrath of God being poured out on his son for our sake is the love of God that compelled him and Jesus to do this for us, for you and me. Jesus, or John, sorry, John, carefully tells us in verse 18 that Jesus was crucified in the middle of two criminals. And this fulfills that famous passage from Isaiah 53, verse 12, which says, he was numbered among the transgressors. Positioning Jesus in the middle of the two criminals accentuates his disgrace. It highlights his shame. Being in the center could either be a place of, of greater honor or a place of greater shame, depending on the context, right? You know, when John and James were man, imagining Jesus on the throne and, and one on the right and one on the left, that, that was a place of honor, Jesus in the center. But this is a place of shame because of what's happening, what's being done to them, at least humanly speaking. We know God is behind it using this to fulfill his purposes. But of these three disgraced men, humanly speaking, Jesus is the most disgraced. That brings us to the end of scene one. The second scene directs our gaze to that sign, that title, above Christ's head. Look with me at verses 19 to 22. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, or probably better translation would be Aramaic, Greek and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. The importance of this title is magnified by its trilingual presentation. Pilate writes it in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, or Aramaic. All Aramaic and Hebrew are very, very close, and the word that's used here can refer to either, and it's probably Aramaic because that's the language that was spoken. Hebrew was really just a religious language read in the synagogues and, and things like that. So it's probably referring to Aramaic. So, but, but Pilate writes this, this title in all three of the important languages. Already, you see, the cross has become international. As one commentator put it, the cross is international the moment Jesus mounts it thanks in part to Pilate. Now, the enemies of God don't like Pilate's 
title. They push back. They insist that Pilate change the sign to read that Jesus only claimed to be the king of the Jews. Let's be clear, he's not the king of the Jews, but of course, Pilate has been kind of poking them in the eye through this whole process with the political gerrymandering, and he's not going to change. He's doing this for a reason. He's not because he believes Jesus really is some kind of genuine king, but because he maybe wants to get one last jab at the Jews. And so Pilate digs in his heels. What, what I've written, I've written. That's, that's how it's going to stay. And part of the point here that John is making is that Jesus is still the king and nothing can change this. He reigned as a baby when the wise men came looking for the king of the Jews. He reigned at the beginning of Passion Week a few days earlier when the crowds cried, Blessed is the king of Israel. Revelation 19.16 says that when he comes back to earth, he will return as king of kings and lord of lords. He's always been and always will be the sovereign king of heaven and earth. And his kingship was never on display more clearly. It was never made more visible, more obvious than when he was being crucified, when he was hanging on that cross that God foreordained him to die on. Jesus wasn't the king even though he was bearing a Roman cross. No, we know him to be king precisely because we see him bearing the Roman cross given to him both by God and by all of humanity in different senses. The sign stays because Jesus is king and his cross is his throne. Don't miss that in John's gospel. His cross is his throne. Christ is ruling from his cross. He reigns supreme on Golgotha. That's why every reference in the rest of the New Testament to Christ's dominion is accompanied by a reference to the cross. Nearby, you'll find a reference to the cross when you read about the dominion, the reign of King Jesus. It couldn't happen apart from the cross. The New Testament never imagines the reign of Christ apart from the cross of Christ. What this means is that Jesus takes dominion. He fulfills that dominion mandate in the Old Testament going all the way back to Genesis 1. He fulfills that. He accomplishes that by bearing his cross, through the cross. The cross could not be circumvented. Jesus reigns, he takes dominion by bearing his cross, and so do we. So do you. You take dominion by taking up your cross. There's no other way to produce fruit 
and to make a real lasting difference in this world, in your life, in your circle, in the years that God gives you, apart from taking up your cross the way that Jesus did. To the extent you take up your cross, you take dominion, effectively. You reign with Christ from your cross while you're on this earth. And becoming a cross-bearer is not just, it's not an option. It's not just what the super-Christians do who want to go above and beyond the rest of us. Cross-bearing is required. Jesus requires you to deny yourself and take up your cross. That's what it means at the core to follow him. And it means for you, for each of you, something very specific. There's a universal, there are universal applications, but there are specific applications because God has called each one of us to a different place, station, time of life, different geography, different jobs, different home situations, different people in our circles, different challenges, different trials, different temptations. But it means that you're required to do certain things or to not do certain things right now and this afternoon and tomorrow and next week and the rest of your life every moment. There's never a time you turn this vocation off or you go on vacation from this calling to follow Jesus with your cross on your back. And this this demand, this calling, this requirement is rooted in the cross of Christ. Let Let me show you what I mean. Because of his reign from the cross, because of Christ's reign from the cross, Because Jesus endured the cross and its shame, he, with authority, rightly makes authoritative demands on his followers. He makes demands on you by virtue of his obedience to the Father, by virtue of his sacrifice on the cross for you. He demands absolute submission all the time. And and, and I want to put it this way. He requires you to let him live your life for you. Did you know that? And did you get that? Let me, because Jesus gave himself up for you on the cross, by virtue of his crucifixion on your behalf, he requires you to let him live your life for you. That's what Galatians 2.20 means. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. How's it end? Who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the foundation of everything that was said right before it. Because Christ took your place on the cross, because he loved you and gave himself for you, we could add, because he obeyed his Father perfectly, 
He demands that you die to yourself and follow him, imitate him, and do what he does. Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Matthew 10, 38. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Matthew 16, 24 and 25. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Do you have a spirit of submission to the rule of Christ? Do you have a spirit of submission to the rule of Christ? Now, my guess is if, that I, if I were to ask every person in this room that question one-on-one, individually, and if you were to ask me, the answer would be yes. Now, we, we would admit faults, failures, sins, shortcomings, but yes, that's, that's what I do. But we can run diagnostics and, and test that as well. Because submitting to God, submitting to Christ in this way will flesh itself out in other ways, in, in maybe concrete ways, tangible ways that the rest of us can see and that you can see if you examine yourself. And so children, do you submit to your parents? Because if you don't submit to your parents, children, you can't then go and claim that you submit to Christ because Christ calls you to submit, to obey cheerfully your parents. We could ask all of us, adults and children alike, similar questions about other authorities, other requirements that God has put on us, our duties, our particular callings, our, the universal callings and requirements that God puts on his people. How do you submit to your boss at work? How do you submit to your husband, to your government, to your elders? How do you submit to those verses in the Bible that you don't like, that, that, that you don't have a place for? Do you write them off, cast them aside because they, your system doesn't have a place for them. And so we can see that this has to touch the ground. It has to land. This taking up our cross, submitting to Christ, dying to ourselves, it has to land in our lives somewhere. And so children, are you willing to take up your cross and obey your mom and dad? Even when they're not being, maybe especially when they're not being godly parents. Are you willing to do? That's what Christ is calling you to do. That's one, it's one of the crosses that, that you must bear, children. And we could make the same application when your elders are not acting the way they ought or when your civil authorities are not acting the way they ought, when your husband is not acting the way he ought. Are you willing to take up your cross and bear it? So adults and children alike, baptized members of the body of Christ, are you trying to save your life or are you losing it for Christ's sake? 
Each of us is doing one or the other. Each of us is on an overall trajectory. Now, we could nuance that and say, well, in this area, maybe I'm doing better than this area. But overall, there's a trajectory in your life, a direction. You're either on the saving my life track or on the losing my life track. Saving your life leads to losing out on true life. It leads to joylessness, bitterness, resentment. Losing your life for Christ's sake will lead you to a cross. And on your cross, you'll find there true, satisfying life. Because it'll be from God. God gives it. You find it because God gives it. As long as you're willing to carry it and die on it. The grace of God in Christ is free. Absolutely free. But it's not cheap. It's free to you, but it cost God much. Dietrich Bonhoeffer made this point well in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He wrote, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Absolution is the pronouncement of forgiveness. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. Grace is costly because it cost a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. End quote. Don't let yourself practically forget that the cross of Christ was a real event, a historical event that happened in history. In time and space. On Friday, April 7th, AD 30. The, the cross beam was real. Came from a, a real tree. The place of the skull is still there. Jesus was really beaten. He was nailed to a cross. He gasped for air. He was forsaken by God. All of this is very real. It's not just ideas. Which means, because it's real, this means that the love of God for you in Christ is real. It really is true what Paul says in Romans 5.8. God shows his love. He demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as the great hymn says... Love so amazing, that kind of love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. If you want to embrace the whole gospel, 
then you must be willing to let the gospel embrace the whole you. You must recognize that the demands of the cross are expansive. And if you're a true believer, this isn't a turnoff because you delight in God's requirements. The Psalms say that the blessed man delights in God's law. In another place, he delights in God's commandments. God's love in Christ has given you everything, and now it demands everything of you. God sent his son to a cross for you, and now he calls you to take up your cross and live for him. Are you ready and willing to give up everything to follow Christ? We'll pick back up uh, the the final two scenes of this passage next week, Lord willing. In verses 23 and 24, the soldiers divide Jesus' garments. In verses 25 to 27, Jesus speaks to his mother and his beloved disciple. But let's end today by, by considering our king and his cross, and what the crucifixion of Jesus means for his baptized followers. It's fitting that just above, just, just above the head of the crucified Christ, as if it were a crown, there was a sign, a title, which announced in all the important languages that Jesus is king the long awaited king the israel's long anticipated messiah is hanging on this very tree jesus isn't hanging on the cross as a victim he's there voluntarily by his own authority by his own planning what pilate didn't know And what his title boldly and clearly declared is that the crucifixion of Jesus is his exaltation. The crucifixion of Jesus is his being lifted up, even exalted by God. And Jesus knew that this would be the case. He knew it was the case at the time. He understood the nature of his cross. He knew his cross would be not primarily his humiliation, but rather his exaltation. Back in John 3, 14, he said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, exalted. In God's reality and in his spiritual economy, the lifting up of the Son of Man on the cross was his moment of glory and exaltation. You have to understand the gospel to see that, to believe that. The question that each of us needs to ask when we read this text, as we think about this text, is do I view my cross as my exaltation? Do I see glory in submitting to Christ absolutely and dying to myself for his sake? Do I find deep satisfaction in losing and forsaking my idea of a good life, 
of a comfortable existence because I know that by doing so, I'll find something far better because Christ will give it to me. If you're looking for the joy-filled life, then what you're really looking for is the cruciform life. That means the cross-shaped life. Cruciform means cross-shaped. The, cross, the cross-shaped life is the life of saying sorry first, the life of overlooking offenses, the life of giving up on what, what you want even if you think it's the best, the life of doing the hard thing rather than the easy thing, the life of saying no to yourself and your cravings and your ambitions and yes to Christ and your neighbor Children, the cross-shaped life is a life of making sacrifices for your brother or your sister in your home instead of trying to get what is yours, instead of trying to grab the toy because you had it first. The cross-shaped life is the life of killing your pride and your bitterness and your insistence on having your own way. In short, the cross-shaped life is a life of death. Death to self, death to your life. Christ endured his cross for the joy that was set before him. Are you willing to endure your cross for the joy that God has set before you? Are you willing to endure whatever cross God gives you for the joy that awaits you on the other side when you bear it faithfully? It's hard, but it's worth it. And you can do it for the sake of Christ, because he first did it for your sake. Let's pray and ask for God's help. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for the good news, for the event of the cross that saves us, for sending Jesus, your Son, out of your deep, deep love for us. We pray that as we consider these things that we will also treasure them in our hearts and that they will cause us to have living waters flowing in us and through us and out of us. And so this week, give us the grace, the will, to do what you are calling us to do in being followers of Jesus. Help us to believe what he has done for us first to make it possible. We ask for your help in the name of Jesus and in the power of his spirit. Amen.